give a look at Isaiah 8, which is page 572, if you're using a house Bible. I think there are times in the lives of most Christians when it seems as if the purposes of God and the promises of God are threatened. Temptation seems so strong in the moment that the person begins to fear that it will never be overcome. Afflictions seem too great to ever possibly be endured another day longer. Or the, the power of darkness seems to be overcoming the advance of Christ's kingdom in the world. And we begin to grow fearful that God's purposes and his promises will never come to pass. That's the background. Isaiah's prophecy here, he's preaching to the people of Judah. On the throne is a king by the name of Ahaz, and he is being threatened, the people of the throne is being threatened by a northern alliance of the nations of Syria and, uh, and uh, Israel, otherwise called Ephraim in this text as and these two countries are allied together to put pressure on Judah to join a pact that they have established against the great world power of the time, which is Assyria. And since Ahaz has resisted so far their attempts to persuade him to join them, their plan now is to come and decapitate Judah's leadership to destroy Ahaz and, in fact, all of the house of David and to set up a new dynasty, one that will be favorable in leading Judah to join them in their fight against Assyria. And this is what was going on when Isaiah preached at this point, delivered this, uh, this prophecy. Ahaz was fearful for his life. And I want you to remind you that what was at stake here was not merely the loss of one of Israel's kings, but the overthrow of the promise and the purpose of God in the Davidic covenant. Remember that God promised David, you will never lack a man to sit upon, upon, upon the throne. One of your descendants will rule and reign over God's people forever and ever, right? And now here, that very promise of God, the very purpose to which God had committed himself, seems in jeopardy. And that, that is where Christians find themselves from time to time. When we're reading the promises of God and we're holding on to his stated purposes, but all around us makes it appear as if his promises will not come to pass, like they're in jeopardy. And so there is great help and comfort here, brothers and sisters, for us. And there is also a warning to us lest we go on in unbelief about God's promises. Ahaz, for example, was paralyzed by fear of this northern threat 
And so God sent to him in that moment the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah brought Ahaz this message. He said, don't trust in Syria and Israel, and don't trust in Assyria either. Forswear all of your allegiances and put your faith in the Lord. The Lord will be faithful to his promises. Trust him. Trust God and that northern alliance that stands on the threshold of, of coming in and destroying Israel and destroying Judah, that will be overcome. That was Isaiah's message to the king. And he offered them under the Lord's direction to give to Ahaz a sign, a wondrous sign to confirm God's word. He said, ask a sign as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, ask any sign. And Ahaz, in a pretense of piety, says, I will not test the Lord by asking for a sign. Of course, the reality is that Ahaz had put his hope in Assyria. That's what he was resting for. Then this empire to come and deliver him from the hand of this northern alliance. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, now beginning in chapter 8, verse 13, he says, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 7, Isaiah 8, let's go back to 7. Let's pick up there, chapter 7, and verse number 13. And he said, that is, Isaiah said to Ahaz, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is the sign that is given to Ahaz under the direction of Lord. Now the first part of this sign seems a bit cryptic. We looked at this last week, right? Who is this virgin? Who is her son? And we get several hints in the text itself. First, that the sign, remember this, was not given to Ahaz individually, but it was given rather to the whole house of David. Remember the, that the you in verse 14 is plural. So that this sign from the very beginning, there were hints that this sign may go well beyond just the immediate historical situation, right? Secondly, we have this. In chapter 9, which just continues on thematically connected all the way through 7, 8, 9 here, in chapter 9, this child is given the name the Mighty God. He said that he would rule over the kingdom of God forever which really adds something to the title here that he's given, Emmanuel, God, with us. If, if all of these are given their full weight, then, the, 
this prophecy has amazing implications. Thirdly, there is this. There is chapter 8, verse 16, which I highlighted last week for you, where Isaiah is told to seal up this prophecy, to save it, that it may be sealed in preparation for a day to come in which it would be revealed, in which it would be fulfilled. That is, there is an indication here that it refers ultimately not to Isaiah's day, but to what chapter 9, verse 1 describes as, quote, the latter time, the last days. And then finally, you have really the fullness of this sign finally becoming clear to everyone when Jesus of Nazareth was born. For he was conceived in a literal virgin who had never been with a man. He was heralded as Emmanuel by an angel from heaven. He was to be very God in human flesh. Truly a sign worthy of the appellation as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, right? This advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world was then God's sort of after-the-fact sign that he had been in control all the way through preserving the house of David in keeping with his covenant. And we're encouraged by to remember that God is always faithful to his covenant promises. The advent of Jesus Christ was God's ultimate yes to all of his prophecies and all of his promises to which we gladly say our amen. Praise the Lord. Let it be so that Christ has come into the world that all of God's promises are certain and sure. We can be encouraged because God sent his son in the flesh that all of his promises to us will in fact be fulfilled. This was the ultimate fulfillment of this sign that Isaiah gave. But I think there would be an even more imminent aspect to this sign as well. In verses 15 and 16, if you take a look again, back at the side, the son's age becomes a key factor in the prophecy. And it's stated this way, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. There's sort of a time frame built in here. Uh, in other words, there's, there's a, a son or a child, and there is some level of growth and maturity in knowing right from wrong, and that's the period of time that's being marked out here. In other words, probably something like, you know, in, a, in just a few, in a, in, in, in a matter of months or in just a few short years from this child's birth is another way to say it. So what's going to happen then? Well, take a look back at the text, verse 15. While the boy is still very young then, before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, he will eat curds and honey, whatever that means. And then in verse 16, it says again, within a short time of the child's birth, that the land of Israel that Ahab had feared will be what? It will be deserted. 
Lord is saying, hey, trust me. In just a short time, I will bring desolation upon these two great nations that you're so fearful about. The Lord is tying this to a, a period of time, which seems kind of like a strange sign if this is only talking about the birth of Jesus hundreds of years later. As John Calvin said, it is not probable that this promise of the overturn of the kingdoms of Syria and Samaria, which immediately followed, would be deferred for 500 years, that is, until the coming of Christ. And indeed, it would have been altogether absurd. So if that is the case, then who is this boy, in verse 16, who is still very young, when the Northern Alliance is defeated? Well, Calvin's answer is uh, that it could, be, it could be a reference to any boy, just a generic, a boy. So by the time it takes, so to speak, for a boy, any boy, to grow up, uh, to mature, to come to uh, just at the age of a few months or years, to an understanding, before that time passes, Israel and Syria, Syria will be defeated. In other words, it's going to be a short time. And uh, in fact, Calvin calls verses 16 and following a short digression, after which he comes back to the original promise of the Son that's mentioned up in verse 14, the virgin shall give birth to the Son. But, of course, Isaiah writes very definitely about this boy in verse 16, calling him the boy, which is hard to understand how it could be any less definite than the virgin of verse 15. In other words, I'm not so sure it's just a general reference to the age of, of any particular child kind of coming to a, a little bit of maturity, a short period of time. But uh, that is uh, one way to understand this text. Another uh, interpreter, uh, John Gill, uh, he says that the boy in verse 16 uh, is a reference to Isaiah's first son. Remember back in earlier in the chapter when God first told Isaiah to go and stand before Ahaz, he was supposed to bring his child. Not told how old that child was, and possible, maybe he was just a brand new boy. And so that this applied to him. But uh, in my view, both interpretations kind of suffer from the same problem, which is inserting a different boy into the middle of what seems to be a cohesive section running from verse 14 on about the promised son. And here's why I say it's a cohesive section. Now, just follow me for a little bit this morning, okay, because we're kind of digging into some details. But then I want us to see how it was meant to be uh, a, a help to the people of God and really to us today. I say again, I think verses 14 and following is a cohesive section, not that there's something inserted in the middle of it for these reasons. First, you notice verse 15 and verse 16, right? They both use the same language, right? The child's knowing how to refuse the evil and choose the good. It seems like verse 16 is just going on, continuing to talk about what verse 15 was already talking about. Secondly, verse 16 begins with what word? The word what? Yeah, all right, three of you saw it. Good job. The word what? 
I have her report, which it seems to connect it with what just came immediately before. That is, the prophecy about the virgin bearing a son who will eat curds and honey in his youth. Thirdly, this same context is actually continuing on down in verse 22. Take a look at verse 22. This boy in verse 22, the same one that's first mentioned in verse 16, this boy is eating curds and honey. Well, that's just like he was doing up in verse 15, right? Before the supposed digression uh, here in the text. All of that to say, here's what Here's, here's where I think this is going. I think this is a cohesive section. This text all goes together. And if that's the case, then the question is, well, who is this child? Is it, it on, on the, when, when we look at the indications that we spent so much time on last week, it becomes obvious that the ultimate fulfillment of this text is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and his virgin birth. For all those reasons we looked at last week. But there does seem to be a kind of immediate foreshadowing of that ultimate fulfillment. So who is that? What is the near-term nature of the sign that Isaiah gives? And so I want to go on and continue the text and see if there are any indications of that for us. Verse 17. Follow with me. Verse 17. Then the Lord, excuse me, so verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you, that is, upon King Ahaz, this is singular, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have, as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. In other words, since the breakup of the kingdom of Israel, right? And what trouble is going to be greater than the trouble of the breaking up of the kingdom of Israel. Well, the answer, he says, is the king of Assyria. That is going to be your great trouble, which is very fascinating because that's the very thing that Ahaz was hoping in, right? He was trusting in. Tiglath-Pileser and Assyria, that was going to be his deliverance. That was going to be his ticket out of this mess with this northern alliance. And the Lord says, that very thing that you dread is going, that very thing that you're trusting in, excuse me, is going to turn on you. And in fact, friends, in a sense, that is true of everyone and of everything that we might try to put our ultimate hope in. It will let us down. It cannot completely satisfy it cannot save us in the day of our greatest trouble. And I want to remind all of us that whenever we make an idol out of something, that God may turn it around and make it a curse for us. That very thing in which we hope, that thing that we're clinging on to, that thing that we say, I've got to have this more than anything else. Oh, brothers and sisters, beware of that. Beware of idolatry, which is exactly what Ahaz was doing. But the failure of those hopes, the 
insufficiency of those things that we might put our trust in ought to show us how much we need the Lord and to drive us back to Him who is our sure foundation. And I think that's what this was meant to do for Ahaz. This was, that's what this was meant to do for the people of Judah. Those with ears to hear were meant to hear this and to, and to have their hearts uh, receive this warning from the Lord. And the Lord's judgment on Assyria, I mean, excuse me, on, on Ahaz for his unbelief and upon unbelieving Judah, that, that judgment would come not only from the north, but from the south, not only from Assyria, but from Egypt, beginning in verse number 18 again. Verse 18, he says, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. He goes on to say, In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. That is, the Lord's going to shave the land of Israel with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will be and it will sweep it will sweep away the beard also. In other words, the Lord is saying Judah is going to be denuded by these judgments that God is bringing on her. Verse 21. In that day. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, and everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. So here's the connection to what came before. In just a short period of time, the Lord will bring his judgment upon this land, and it will be such that... Uh, that they, they will eat curds and honey. Now that's a that's a little bit of a difficult one. I don't think anybody is quite sure of the significance of that allusion, but uh, perhaps it speaks about the land of Judah, which will be left with so few resources that it will be enough to abundantly supply for the vastly diminished population that's left after that. This is obviously, though, a passage of judgment, judgment on Ahaz and on Judah, if they persist in unbelief. And so he goes on in verse 23, he says, In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand mines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. The Lord is saying to his people, if you persist in trusting in Assyria instead of the Lord, it will be your downfall. And the holy land, the land of promise, the land that flows with milk and honey will become a land of, of desolation. People won't even, won't even have enough population to farm the land. 
Now in chapter 8, he continues, Isaiah does, speaking of the near-term sign that God is giving to Israel, Judah. Chapter 8, verse 1, And the Lord, then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, Belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. So Isaiah, that was a tough one, right? <laughs> Isaiah, that's the one, that's the one you should practice before you go. <laughs> Isaiah was to make a literal sign of some sort. Uh, and that sign was to be large so that everyone might see it. It was to be simple, that is, as it's translated here, in common characters, so that all might understand it, and to be attested by two witnesses so that all would believe it. And on that placard or sign, this literal sign, he was to write this, two Maher Shalal Hashbaz, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means something like, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it probably reads something like this, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Which probably is a testimony to the swift advance of the Assyrians to gain the spoils of Judah. And so there's this handmade engraved sign and that is now going to be reflected in a kind of living sign in the form of Isaiah's son. The word made flesh, as it were. Chapter 8, verse 3, he says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Isaiah goes to the prophetess, his wife. Uh, probably called the prophetess, not because she necessarily stood up and made predictions about the future like Isaiah did, but because she and her family are living prophecies, as it were. They are prophets just by their lives. Kind of like, remember the prophet Hosea and his wife and his children, they were living prophecies, just like Isaiah's. And so he goes to her and they have a son, they have a son, uh, and that second son is given that sign name, that name on that literal sign, that uh, is now his name, so the son becomes God's incarnate testimony about what he's revealing. He becomes the incarnate word, if you will. And you begin to see a number of verbal 
parallels in chapter 8 to the earlier Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7. Let me point them out to you. First, in verse 3, you have the terminology that's used. He went to her and she conceived and bore a son. This set of three Hebrew terms is exactly the same as you find in chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Secondly, in both cases, there is a divine command about naming the son. Thirdly, both of these delineate a short period of time that's bounded by the early development of a child. Back in chapter 7 it was, when the child is old enough to know right from wrong. In chapter 8, it's when he's old enough to be able to say daddy and mommy, essentially. So there's a period of time bounded by the development of a child. Fourthly, both of these signs point to the same imminent event, at least in some sense. They point to an imminent event. That is something that's going to happen very quickly, namely that those two threatening countries in the north will be desolate. God will take care of them. And the whole point is, so trust in the Lord, not in men. Fifthly, you also have Emmanuel coming to the forefront in this prophecy as well. We won't get to it, but down at the end of verse 8, and then again in the end of verse 10, you have that term Emmanuel coming up again here in this passage as well. And finally, you have chapter 8, verse 18. If you look at that for a moment, chapter 8, verse 18, the prophet says, Behold, I and the children the Lord has given me are what? They're signs, and that's the same term that's used of the virgin's son back in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. So on and on it goes, so that it seems to me, it seems to me that Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, is a kind of recasting of that earlier prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14. Some interpreters go so far as to call it a double fulfillment. Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in Christ and in Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I don't feel comfortable, actually, with that kind of language of double fulfillment for all of the reasons that I stated last week. There is one fulfillment, but there is also a foreshadowing, a kind of typological fulfillment, if you will. I think in a similar fashion to the way that David's son Solomon, was told that he would build God's temple. But in reality, that was a prophecy of something far greater. Because David's son Solomon foreshadowed David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would build the true, ultimate temple. That is his body, his church, right? Or is similar, I think, to how the prophet Hosea called Israel God's son when he called his son out of Egypt in the Exodus, and that foreshadowed God's bringing his son Christ, the true Israel, out of Egyptian 
uh, hiding shortly after his birth. So over and over again, the Lord orchestrates the history of his people to be a pointer to something greater. Christ is the real point of Isaiah's whole prophecy, the entire section. Christ is the real point of it. But it has an immediate application as well. I think it, in, in many ways it's similar to this, very similar to what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says that husbands should love their wives, right? Remember this? And give themselves up for their wives. And then he calls this a mystery, which is a shadowy pointer to a greater reality. And then in verse 32 of that same chapter, he says it this way. This mystery is profound. This, this love of the husband and giving of himself for his wife. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. Right? Paul's saying that's the ultimate significance of this. But then he turns around in the very next verse and he says, However, let each one of you love his wife. Your own individual right now application in sort of typological fashion, the way that Christ loves his church and gives himself up for his church. And that really is the case here. There is something that's the big thing that we don't want to miss. The, the ultimate thing, the real fulfillment, the, the, the Christ who fills full all of these texts. But there is then an immediate foreshadowing that is going to be encouragement and help to God's people in that very moment. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment that God will establish the house of David forever. But Meher Shalom Hashbaz, I, I think, is the immediate sign that before he's very old, Israel and Syria will be and while Meher Shalal Hashbaz's conception uh, obviously came through ordinary means, it's not impossible, I think, that his mother was truly a virgin at the time of his prophecy. So they said, well, how can that be? Because they already have a baby, right? And uh, uh, nothing is actually said, though, in the text about Isaiah's first son, about the mother of his first son. It could well be. It's entirely possible to say that she had already died. And now, Isaiah takes a virgin daughter of Israel as his new bride and conceives with her and bears a son. And I think, I think that the very fact that the language of the prophecy can't be pressed to its fullest sense with regard to the type is part of what indicates that it foreshadows something greater later on. So we're to see in this an immediate um, sort of foreshadowing, but there's still something that we're waiting for. And I think that's the way a lot of this Old Testament typology works. That's the way it reads. So the ultimate testimony, friends, to God's sovereignty and to his covenant faithfulness is what? What's the ultimate sign of his faithfulness? His virgin-born son. But he also graciously gives to Judah an immediate encouragement to repent and to believe in his promises 
they will work out according to his sovereign purposes. And the Lord does that, I believe, as well for us. That he not only fulfills all of his promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he often graciously affirms them right now in our own lives, in the course of our experience, through everyday signs, evidences of his trustworthiness. He graciously gives to us right now warnings and testimonies such that if we turn from our fears and trust the Lord, we would be saved. Can't you look back at your own life and see evidences and signs of the faithfulness of God? Can you not? Can't you look back at your life and uh, maybe your life is a little bit like uh, the life of Jacob and you know, the, the patriarchs who leave a trail of altars where God manifests himself and proves again and, and evidences again, gives testimony to his trustworthiness. Or maybe like Israel that erected these pillars as they went toward the promised land and, and reminded themselves that God's word is true, that you can trust him, that what he says he will do. Those events like after they cross the Red Sea and they come out to the other side and they create beautiful poetry and songs to commemorate all of the faithfulness of God in their life. You have moments like that where you have not only taken it by faith, looking to Christ, that all of God's promises are yes in him, but you also have had the personal testimony of God, the personal evidence of God's faithfulness even to you. I think back of times when God has forgiven me, when I have, have not deserved it by any means, and my heart is overwhelmed by his absolute faithfulness. I look back on times when he has revived my heart after he should have just let me go. And, and once again, I, I, I've seen in my actual experience that everything that he says is true, that what he begins he will complete in the day of Christ. I look back on times when he has provided for me in ways that were unexpected and clearly intended to manifest to me that his word is always true, that he always takes care of his children. Do we not have experiences like that, brothers and sisters? The psalmist, in his moment of discouragement and fear at the waves and the winds that were all around him and the troubles that he faced. He said, I will remember the works of the Lord, all of his works of old. He would look back on the evidences and the signs, the clear manifestations of God's faithfulness to his word and encourage his heart in the You know, when you're tempted to be fearful, when your heart is quaking, I hope that you'll remember the faithfulness of God. How I proved him o'er and o'er. Have you seen that song again by the way? Oh, I have proved him o'er and o'er. Again and again, he has proved, he 
his faithfulness in me to you. And that is really the, I think, the immediate intended effect that this kind of text was supposed to have on the people who heard it in Isaiah's day. Uh, he says, he makes the application this way, verse 12, look at chapter 8, verse 12. Here he begins to really apply this whole text by saying, do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Let the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. You know, there are all kinds of conspiracies, evil collusions in the world around us, right? Some are open and obvious, like uh, the conspiracy of this northern alliance to destroy the house of David. Other conspiracies are secret and hidden. Maybe Ahaz had a fear that there was more being plotted and planned than anyone knew. I think some conspiracies exist perhaps only in our fear, only in our imaginations of what might be and what could be. In any case, the Lord is telling his people, hey, don't fear what the world fears, right? Stop letting your mind be consumed by conspiracy theories. Don't be in dread of those who would plot against the people of God, against God's purposes and God's plans that he has stated. Don't be fearful about that. I mean, there is no conspiracy in the entire world that is a match for the sovereign God. Amen? No conspiracy can thwart the purposes of God. You think of the greatest conspiracy in all of human history? Jew and Gentile colluded together on this one. Herod and Pilate. Devils and men. In order to kill the Lord of glory. But far from thwarting the purpose of God, they just sped the purposes of God to their intended conclusion. And that's exactly the way that God's people have always had to rest in the purposes of God, that in the face of what seems to be threats to God's covenant promises, God is working, and he is sovereign all of it, bringing about his purposes to an end. And, and, and he affirms them, he, he points them to them ultimate, their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he also affirms and confirms them to us as we go through our, throughout our lives. Isaiah goes on in verse 13 of the same chapter, right where you are here in chapter 8, and he says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and rock of stumbling. The Lord would become both a sanctuary to those who trusted his covenant promises and a stumbling stone to those who would persist in unbelief. And that's exactly, of course, what happened to Ahaz. Ahaz persisted in his unbelief. He stumbled over the rock that was Christ, and he fell to his own destruction. Where, lest after having seen evidences of God's faithfulness, 
into unbelief. Can I say that again, friends? Beware, lest after you having seen so many evidences of God's faithfulness that you harden your heart in unbelief. But then the Lord would not only be a stumbling stone, but also a sanctuary. And I want to point that out to you and just encourage you with that. The Lord. Jesus Christ, the promise of God, the affirmation of all of God's faithfulness, this would become a sanctuary for those who believed the, Lord, the Lord's promise. And I think of how the, the, the lack of faith that Ahaz displayed here contrasts so sharply in a very similar situation with the faith of someone who believed God's promises, namely Abraham. Because in Ahaz's case, it was God's covenant promises that were threatened, the promise of the Davidic line. With Abraham, it was also God's covenant promise that was threatened by the uh, imminent death of the, the, his only son, his son Isaac, the one for whom the promise would come, right? Both men faced a very similar situation. God made promises. There appeared to be a grave threat to those promises. How did they respond? Ahaz ran to the world for help. Abraham trusted God. Remember, even as he was walking up the mountain, he was telling himself, God is sovereign over all things. If I slay my son in keeping with God's command, perhaps he will raise him from the dead. Because God is always faithful to his promise. That's the way believers think. That's the way you and I should think. That's the way we should speak to our own minds and hearts when the world makes us quake with fear. When it seems as if the promises and the purposes of God are subject to fail. We speak to our hearts with faith. So when you face life, life's most difficult situations, remind yourself of God's grace that has brought you safe thus far, right? Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of the evidences, the signs of God's truthfulness all the way along. And be assured then that God's grace will lead you safely home. Stand firm in the faith. Do not fear what they fear, brothers and sisters. Fear the Lord. Rejoice in the evidences of his faithfulness and keep trusting in his purposes to the very end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word today. I ask, we ask together that you would grant to those who are here hearts to receive this word. Be gracious to us. Help our unbelief. We pray now that there would be none of us who would doubt your promises and purposes. Grant to us that we may persist in faith. Thank you for the many signs of your faithfulness throughout the course of our life. Praise your goodness. In Jesus' name. With heads bowed, eyes closed, let's continue in prayer for a moment, quiet prayer leader.
confessing your fears, confessing 